and welcome once again to Watershed Riders, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. On this program, we read locally and talk globally about all kinds of subjects. This is our first episode of season two of Watershed Riders with me, your host, Tannis McDonald. This season, we are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo. We are a team of three, Francis Riley as producer and our new technical producer, John Roscoe. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. What are we connected by, by, by? And it is my pleasure on this segment to talk with fiction writer Ali Bryan. Ali is joining us in Kitchener-Waterloo as Laurier's winter 2022 Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence from January until March. She'll be in virtual residence and she'll be on hand for one-on-one consultations with writers of all levels of experience and will be leading a number of workshops. Now, I'm aware that Watershed Writers is a podcast that serves writers in the Grand River region. And Ali doesn't live in the Grand River region. She lives in Calgary. So one of the things I want to talk to her about is what it is to be part of a community, part of a virtual community, living in the times that we do. And I think many things have changed for writers over the last little while in terms of what they think of as community. But first, a little introduction to Ali as a writer. She is an award-winning author of four novels who works in the genres of contemporary, dystopian, and YA fiction, as well as with creative nonfiction and the personal essay. Her first novel, Roost, won the Georges Bunet Award for Fiction and was the official selection of one book, Nova Scotia. Her second novel, The Figs, was a finalist for the Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for Humor and has been optioned for TV by Sony Pictures. Her debut YA novel, The Hill, was long listed for the International 2021 Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize. And her most recent work of fiction, The Crow Valley Karaoke Championships, will be published in spring 2023. Welcome, Allie, to Watershed Writers. Thank you. I wanted to have you on to talk about that kind of interesting dichotomy that uh, we're having about local and national communities during our pandemic, when all of a sudden many writers have been taking to online, leading online workshops, doing online talks, and now, of course, an online writing residency, where you are both in your home in Calgary, and also part of the writing community in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo for the time that you've been appointed the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence. Can you say something about what it's like to negotiate distance and community in that particular way? It's really a great opportunity, I think, for writers to sort of step outside their local communities and expand uh, and sort of find their people in kind of this larger connected web great time for writers to have this opportunity and to really get the best of both of their communities, the the local community that they can reach out to and connect with uh, sort of on an everyday, on a geographical basis, but also uh, this larger community that looms out there. You just never know who you're going to connect with. And it's exciting. We all need that spark in our community and in our writing and that uh, the digital format certainly allows us to explore. 
And can you, for people who are perhaps not familiar with the idea of a writer-in-residence, talk about what you see your responsibilities as the writer-in-residence and what you'll be offering to the Kitchener-Waterloo community in that time? Yeah, the Writer-in-Residence program is such a valuable resource to the writing community. I know that I've used them myself over the years, and it can just be a great first point of contact for a lot of writers. I know when I was the resident at the Calgary Public Library, for some people, that visit was the very first time a writer was sharing their work. And that's a really exciting opportunity, but it's a great privilege and responsibility for me on the receiving end of that work. A writer-in-residence would typically do one-on-one manuscript reviews and consultations. They would read a submission by a writer, an author, and then book an appointment to discuss the manuscript. Of course, the workshops are another huge component, so I'll teach both fiction and creative nonfiction. And the other opportunity is just for people to have a discussion about anything to do with writing. It could be craft related. It could be about the writing life, having that sort of first point of contact and, and having someone to sort of bounce ideas off was really, really helpful for me. My job is to really meet each writer where he or she or they are at. And it's it's really important that they walk away with some tangible critique or some options some things to consider. That's really, really important. And I want people to walk away feeling empowered and excited and engaged about where they can take a particular project and just keep the fire going with writing it. There's certainly highs and lows. And so my job is to let people have an experience where they want to keep going. Great. And I also know that while you're here, you'll not only be doing this kind of community work, but you'll also have time to work on your own writing. And I know that you were doing something interesting with a a new project that you're returning to a fictional family that you created for your first novel, Roost, and you are returning to them 10 years later in their lives. Can you say something about what it's like to return to something that you wrote at the beginning of your career and how things have changed in terms of your approach or even in terms of the characters? It has been so fun revisiting this family. And also, you know, there's there's constraints built in. I never set out to write a sequel or a trilogy for this particular project. So unlike someone who was planning a sequel or a trilogy where they might have things plotted out or this sort of grand scheme of how they wanted the project to look like, I just have to go by where the book ended and who these characters were. And so I've already got these constraints built in, which I must say is, is completely fun. And when I look back at the last 10 years and how much has changed politically, socially, environmentally, uh, geographically, like there's just so much rich material. Like, you know, I think we've had Black Lives Matter. We've had the Me Too movement. We have environmental crisis. We had we have had Trump. Those things have influenced this generation so much. So these kids were little in the book and now they're teen. That is just something really fun to play with. It's nothing I had anticipated doing, but it's absolutely delightful to go back to characters that you know and 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 how do you fill in all that backstory of like what's happened in the past decade. Uh, there's something that was always special about this book for me, probably because it was my first. So I have this extra sentimental attachment to it. And I'm a better writer now. I've changed over the last 10 years. I feel like my craft has improved. So uh, I'm really excited about it. And it it's smooth 
and it's exciting. And I think it'll be surprising to readers who know Roost and who have been asking for this sequel, but it will also be familiar. It's a great thing that people are asking for a sequel too, right? I mean, that's uh, that's a compliment in itself that readers are saying, we want more, we want more of this family. We would be remiss if we didn't address the idea that um, the writer-in-residence position at uh, Laurier is established via a bequest from the late Edna Stabler, who you might know is kind of a local hero here in uh, KW. But I wanted to acknowledge that the residency happens because Edna Stabler wanted to support writers in their work and beyond her lifetime and since she passed in uh, the year 2000 and we're still feeling her legacy very much today via this residency. What an incredible gift, not just for the resident themselves who gets the privilege of being able to write, but for so many people, these programs, because they are free and accessible It really can be the first step. I've worked with people through residencies before, and I know that they can be life-changing. They can be life-saving. So it's critical, and I feel very honored to be able to carry on that legacy. It's part of my goal to always sort of give back and to do anything that I can to sort of elevate, to build up, to help other writers And I just know how important it is to have that camaraderie, uh, to connect with other writers, to build community. It's such a challenge to be an artist and uh, takes a lot of bravery and guts and grit. And uh, Edna Stabler knows exactly what that's like. And so it, it feels right to be in this position and to be carrying on with the same sort of values that she instilled. Thanks so much, Allie. People can get in touch with Allie via going to the webpage, Wilfrid Laurier University, Stabler Writer-in-Residence, and all the information for Allie's contact, for her workshops, and for how to meet with her for a one-on-one consultation is there. That's Wilfrid Laurier University, Stabler Writer-in-Residence. Pierby, the award-winning writer of the short story collection Outside People and Other Stories, published in 2017 by Inanna Publications. Outside People and Other Stories won the gold medal for multicultural fiction at the 2018 Independent Book Publisher Awards and was a finalist in two categories at the 2019 International Book Awards. It won again in the short story category at American Book Fest Best Book Awards in 2019. That is a lot of awards for a debut fiction publication, and they are well-deserved. If you haven't read Outside People yet, get ye to an independent bookstore and grab yourself a copy. And now a little about our guest author. Mariam Pirbai was born in Pakistan and lived in England and the Philippines prior to settling in Canada. She earned a PhD in English from the University of Montreal, working on the South Asian diasporic novel. She's been a resident of Waterloo since 2005, and she's a faculty member in Wilfrid Laurier University's Department of English and Film Studies. Now, unofficially, I know her to be someone who plays a mean game of Scrabble, She has a green thumb, and she does not suffer fools gladly. I met Mariam Pirbai on my very first visit to Waterloo in 2006, and I am proud to call her my friend. 
Welcome, Mariam Pirbai, to Watershed Writers. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a delight to have you here. And the very first thing I want to do is congratulate you on your collection of short stories, Outside People, and all the awards it's been winning. What's your response to being showered with accolades for this, your first book? Of course, I was delighted to re receive that recognition from my peers. The American Book Fest Award and IPI are also international awards, which was a nice surprise, especially because they focus on independent presses and small presses. And we know how hardworking independent and small presses are. So it's as much an acknowledgement of Inanna, my publisher, as, as it was for, for me. And, and yeah, you know, it's, it's nice to get that thumbs up from one's peers. And I always think of it as a teacher giving you a gold star, you know, <laughs> and saying sort of good work, uh, well done. But now that you've come to my attention, you'd better keep it up. Now, I need to say to our listeners that I've known Mariam since I moved to the region in 2006. And we've been colleagues for many years. And I'm always interested in writers who move to the region as adults. So I know I did that, I know you did that, and I'm also curious about how people land here, where they've come from, and what they make of being in the region once, once they start to live here. Can you say a little bit about how you came here and the ways that, that living here has changed you? I have lived in Nova Scotia and in Quebec. Coming to Ontario was a more recent migration, and my husband and I moved here. It's been 16 years now. And I came here for my tenure track appointment at Wilfrid Laurier University. Yeah, I mean, even just thinking about the number 16, it's a, it's a big one for me. I don't think I've lived anywhere for as long a stretch. And this is important, I think. It's been quite transformative for me to live somewhere for that period of time. Oh, so would it be fair to say that the region has, in some ways, influenced you as a writer? especially since uh, your first book was published when you were living here. And it was here that you began to think of yourself in uh, some ways as a, uh, as a creative writer. Yes, absolutely. I think living here, that, has, that is, has been quite transformative. I haven't grown up in Canada, so my relationship to the land and the natural environment has not quite sort of been part of my psyche or at least my preoccupations. And so coming to Waterloo, which it's a smaller city, we're surrounded by farmland, all of these things have had an effect both on my writing and my relationship to Canada and to place. And so going back to this idea of, you know, even living somewhere for a good stretch of time, which is a new experience for me, I think has sort of shaken me out of that existential state of restlessness that migrancy often brings and in so doing it's really afforded or the benefit I should say of a sustained kind of looking and listening which is so important to us right it's sort of the bedrock of what we do as writers as immigrants our our focus is so often on the socio-economic business of survival, of fitting in, of getting a job, of belonging, of community is ingrained into our psyches. So over here in Waterloo, being a homeowner, thinking about my garden, thinking about the neighborhood and being a part of this neighborhood, 
getting to know the history of this place and the city, all of this has definitely had an effect. I think I've come to see how divorced and maybe even indifferent I've been to the Canadian landscape. So just to put it into context, you know, just having a garden, for instance, I, you know, you get to observe sort of the migrating patterns of birds as they move through your garden in the spring. We have, we're close enough to farmland and to wilder habitats that we can have residents, rabbits and <laughs> possums and even groundhogs in our backyard. And just taking these incredible walks through areas, conservation areas, for instance, that really are geological marvels, you know, that's so fundamental a part of the Ontario landscape. All of this continues to, to shape me, I think, as a writer in very positive ways. And yeah, I think I'm engaging and perhaps better understanding also the community of writers who have been so influenced by this region, you know, just thinking about the Great Lakes and how they factor into a Canadian writer's psyche, at least those of us who, who live here in this region, the way they've played such a central role in the visual arts and in literature. These are things that are definitely both inspiring me and influencing me and, and really making me part of that conversation in important ways. I know that you have a collection of uh, nonfiction essays, personal essays, uh, about the very thing that you've been talking about coming out, not next year, but the year after with um, the Hamilton uh, publishing company, Wolfsack and Wynn. And uh, can you say a little bit about that uh, in terms of the, the sorts of things you've been talking about, about paying attention to landscape? That project is directly related to um, what Waterloo has given me, what living in this region has given me, it's really transformed, I think, my whole idea of migration and, and perhaps the stages of migration as we move through different kinds of stages as migrants in terms of the things that um, most uh, occupy us. And very often land and our relationship to land is sort of low on the list <laughs> at the center of that project as both an immigrant and a settler. And so I'm really sort of teasing out what it means to both be an immigrant, but an immigrant who is aware that she has arrived in already colonized lands, that there is an entire history, a fraught history of settlement here that I now, of course, have come to occupy and so I'm, I'm thinking about this interrelationship of myself as both an immigrant and another kind of settler or a new wave of settler. The core of the book is the central question, what does it mean for me to be another kind of settler in this land, in this environment? Can I choose and how do I choose an, a different sort of relationship to place, to land? What kind of settler indeed do I want to be. All these limits of experience of people and place, people and nature is something that I explore in this forthcoming collection. So I want to return right now to uh, outside people. And I'm going to quote from the back cover copy, this great quotation from the novelist Shani Mutu, who says, as Diane Arbus is to photography, so is Mariam Pirbai to literature bringing forth the margins 
but notably with understanding and an unusual generosity in her handling of contemporary society's machinations. Now, can you comment on this comparison between uh, Arbus's photography and much of what you've had to say about uh, looking and visuality, this comparison that, that Shani makes in terms of what your intentions were with this short story collection? The comparison, as I understood it, was that Diane Arbus was uh, a photographer known for humanizing subjects re relegated to the margins in American society in, in particular. As one critic put it, Arbus was determined to reveal what others had been taught to turn their backs on. And so in this sense, I think Shani really hit on something with my collection because I think that's what I was primarily driven by. You know, I'm always interested in the gaps in representation. And so this collection um, has a similar impulse perhaps to, to Dine Arbus in that I'm looking at people who are relegated to the margins by such things as class, race, gender, even labor. In my case, marginalization and racialization also intersect in important ways. This notion of acute visibility, right, of racialized subjects, but also invisibility, strangely enough. It's this central paradox of both hypervisibility and um, invisibility that I explore. And I think the title is intriguing too, because certainly my reading of it, um, and I've read this book several times, <laughs> I want to say, um, I know it relates to that outside people uh, is the name of the title story, the final story in the collection, where girls in a Caribbean orphanage observe what happens when the outside people show up uh, to consider uh, adopting one of them. And so it's the Canadian couple who show up in the orphanage that are the outside people in that story. But I think this is the kind of title that flips around several times and you can read it on a number of levels. It shifts and changes and the collection seems to turn on who's outside, who's inside and how those categories are determined, uh, negotiated and possibly breached and changed. I think you're right. I was thinking about the way outsidership is continually recast and reimagined from one story, from one context to the next, perhaps calling into question the stability of all such categories of citizenship and belonging. So going back to this idea of invisibility, one of the things that I was working against was this concept of the visible minority. You know, the visible minority is this label that Canada has used as a state designation for racialized peoples. And I always thought that this was a curious term. It presupposes a level of um, hypervisibility for racialized peoples. And of course, there is truth to that, that very often visible minorities tend to be quite invisible in many ways in terms of their social reality. Invisible because of the kinds of systemic roadblocks that may have denied them a space as equals within their own societies. So in this sense, outsidership, forms of invisibility, hypervisibility, and 
marginalization are interrelated tropes. So going, going back to your example of the child in the, in the orphanage, the, the titular story in the collection, um, it's a great example because, yeah, you're right, the Canadian couple who comes to this Caribbean setting to potentially, hopefully adopt, are seen as the outsiders by this little girl, so the orphan protagonist. And yet her mother has left for, El for the North. She has come to Canada for a better life, for better job opportunities. So the girl's orphanhood comes about through her mother's migration. Um, so that sort of begins to flip the idea of, you know, who is inside and who is outside. And each of the stories plays with outsidership in, in this way. So again, you know, shaking up insiders and outsiders, sort of slippery slope of, of, of belonging and invisibility and outsidership is, is definitely at the core of this collection. Uh, can you read a, a piece from one of the stories for us? And uh, we can hear some of this, uh, this negotiation of insider and outsiderness for ourselves. I selected Chicken Catches to read because it's very much set here in our region. It's about temporary migrant workers who are part of the agricultural labor force, temporary migrant labor force. Many of them who come right here, sort of in our neck of the woods, come to the farms to work. These characters, one of whom is from Jamaica and one of whom is from Peru, really have nothing in common except the fact that they're both holed up in a, the kind of housing that migrant workers, especially on the farms, are asked to reside in. Usually also quite a substandard housing and, and these issues are really coming to the fore, you know, during our COVID pandemic era have really been part of local news coverage in particular, also the precarity of these workers vis-a-vis -vis the healthcare system, et cetera, is something that I'm, I'm happy to see actually has, you know, become part of our conversation of late. And these two workers on a cold wintry day are huddled together as the rest of their fellow workers have been picked up for the day to go out, go to the chicken farm. And their principal work is to inject the chickens with antibiotic, you know, before the slaughter. And Reggie and uh, Amaru are the names of my two characters. And Amaru is asking Reggie why he's come here. So from Jamaica, you know, what's his story? And this is what Reggie has to say. My father had a farm, a dairy farm in Jamaica. A farm? You come here to a farm when your father had a farm? Oh, well, I was 18 when my father lost the farm and I ended up in the city looking for work. Factory work, sewing Nike shorts, cleaning rooms at some luxury resort, pumping gasoline, selling souvenirs to tourists. I did whatever came my way. Then I met this guy who was just getting back from seasonal work up north, picking grapes for some vineyards next to Niagara Falls. He warned me not to go, saying it was like the old days on the Bucker Plantation, a new kind of slavery, he said. I thought he was exaggerating. And I hated the city. The idea of getting back to a farm didn't seem so bad. Your father's farm, Amaru's voice, broke the tension. It have normal cows and normal chickens? Reggie wasn't sure what he was getting at. 
not like here. Aquí muy extraños. Amaru broke a grin. Strange chickens here, you know. Maybe strange cows also? Reggie reflected on Amaru's observation about the local livestock. He'd never thought of it before, but the chickens they had to vaccinate were a little off. Their breasts two or three times the size of any chicken he'd ever seen back home. They were so large, the poor creatures wobbled about unsteadily under the weight of their disproportion. Yet the Dumfrey farm Reggie had gleaned from Hector was considered a producer of organic eggs because the chickens were what they called free run. They were free to run, all right, but only to make their lives living hell, Reggie thought resentfully. Day in and day out, all they did was chase after those hapless animals through the din of their clucking and cackling, the heavy thud and steam rolling of their boots cushioned by a slimy cocktail of feces and feathers, and the smell, the unshakable, putrid smell coming from barns so big, they looked like a hundred poultry farms collapsed into one. It was no wonder the workers were hired to ensure every one of those damn chickens was vaccinated before being put to the slaughter. That was all they were hired to do. Catch the chickens, hold on to them by their necks just long enough for some guy to inject them with antibiotics or some cocktail of drugs, which dosages strong enough to turn even the most unyielding creature into a sad, lifeless lump of feathery flesh. And they had to work so fast that on more than one occasion, he was certain the needle had missed a chicken and pierced through his gloves. Those chickens don't look right, man, Reggie laughed. Exactly. Why their breasts so big? In Peru, no one wants that part. Everyone wants this. How you say this part in English? Amaro asked, pointing to his leg. Oh, the thigh, Reggie said. When we were kids, we used to fight over the legs and thighs. My parents even took the white meat so we could get the dark meat. Oh, lo más sobroso. Amen, Reggie concurred. But everyone wants white meat around here. Did you see the $2 special at KFC? A whole meal with all the sides, but only if you take the thighs. See, sí, muy especial. Here, dark meat sells cheap. Thank you for that reading, and, uh, and of course, those you know those metaphors of uh, of the white meat, the dark meat, and of course the the very strange chickens. You're listening to Watershed Writers here on Midtown Radio. We broadcast every Saturday at 10 a.m., and if you miss the episode, you can get it by going to watershedwriters.com. Next week. We'll be talking with the writers and editors of Textile Magazine about mentoring new writers and about hyper-local literature. Join us then, won't you? That story is one of my favorites, uh, and not the least because it's based on a tragic event that, as you point out, happens very, very close to home. And uh, part of what gets folded into the story it's a slight spoiler, but I think people need to hear uh, about this, is that you take the, the terrible traffic accident in 2012 that happened just here near Hampstead, Ontario, and that was an accident in which several seasonal farm workers, many of them migrants from other countries who were here uh, coming north to pick, right, uh, were killed when they were uh, traveling from farm to farm. And I remember you saying to me once that you hadn't seen that many literary examinations of migrant workers, so little media attention to those tragic deaths that you wanted to explore, in part to push back against the silence surrounding the the incident. Yeah, I was very much moved by 
this event. But I think that the impetus for the story came about not only because of the underrepresentation of the temporary migrant worker in Canada, and I do have other stories that deal with some aspect of the temporary workers program, such as domestic workers, for instance, or foreign trained nurses who come here from places such as the Philippines and the Caribbean and, and also bring to view a whole other level of experience. And that is, of course, gendered labor, the forms of um, the gendering of certain aspects of our labor force. But this story, uh, going back to this story, that tragic event of the migrant workers who were killed and in this road accident, um, it really stayed with me because what I noticed in the reportage was that the workers themselves, the, the casualties, were left unnamed in much of the reporting of the event. And the only person who was named was the young man who was driving the van. I just thought this seems to be a real disservice to these workers who are so essential in terms of our, our agricultural sector, our, our economy, and yet even in their death, they're, they're shrouded in invisibility. The story is very much dedicated to the men who lost their lives in this particular tragedy. I wanted to also bring the experience of the temporary migrant workers force into focus in some way to humanize that experience. Learning about the temporary migrant workers program or the temporary foreign workers program, I was really quite floored, but on a number of levels. Um, one, just the amount of people who come to Canada every year. Ontario, for instance, is brings about 40 to 50,000 workers per year. I think over the course of 10 years, Ontario saw 800,000 workers coming in and out of Canada, mainly for its agricultural sector. So this alone, just the sheer numbers alone, really gave me pause that we have such a movement of people coming into Canada, and yet this labor force remains invisible. And then looking into this further, I realized that that invisibility is, is there by design. Now, I'm someone who spent much of my academic -like life thinking about labor diasporas, and I've been involved in quite a bit of research on indentureship, so bond, forms of bonded labor in the colonial era. And I was really struck by how similar the regulation and management of the temporary workers program is to those old colonial forms of indentured labor. So, so just to give you an example, many of the migrant workers, that, at least over here in our region, their movements are quite restricted and regulated. So they are brought into the cities like Waterloo or Kitchener from the farms where they're working and where they reside at certain times of the day. And you can imagine these certain times of the day are times where we might be you know, it could be very, very early in the morning where they come and go unnoticed. Also, the time that they're permitted off the farm or their places of residence is also restricted and regulated. And so this idea, again, of invisibility becomes not just experiential fact, but a, a highly controlled kind of system of marginalization and outsidership. And I thought, I, I really have to tackle this story. 
I have to uh, have to look into this further. And it, it yielded not only chicken catchers, but it yielded some of these other stories I was mentioning in the collection. One about a Haitian woman who comes to Canada as um, a foreign trained nurse who's now in Canada, but can't find work as a nurse. Her, her qualifications aren't recognized here in Canada. And she's desperate to go back home to help in uh, the aid effort in Haiti after the earthquake hits, but she can neither work here nor can she travel back as now a foreign nurse. She's in this sort of no man's land of qualifications, of unrecognized qualifications. So, you know, just exploring the governance of temporary and migrant workers in Canada really opened my eyes to a lot of sort of systemic uh, inequalities and and really some, some things that, again, have come to a head, I think, during the pandemic, because we've seen that the care sector in particular, um, in long-term care facilities, for instance, in hospitals as well, is largely governed by this um, migrant labor force. And yet there are so many nurses who are already here, who are foreign trained, who can't practice in our medical system, and also so many who are ready to come to Canada and have so much red tape to get through before they're ever able to, to emigrate here or to practice here. So, you know, the story was written, or rather the collection was written and published in 2017, but it's interesting that we're having a lot of these conversations now in, in a way that seems quite urgent. Well, that's because your collection was so prescient, Mariam. You had your finger on the pulse, right? Especially with this idea of, of all kinds of medical workers. And we're seeing all kinds of burnout now. They're overwhelmed. They're burning mm -hmm. out. And yeah, what about uh, getting people who have been trained elsewhere in nursing to employ, particularly under these circumstances of an emergency. Now from that, I'm going to ask you <laughs> to describe something a little different. I'm laughing because I'm gonna ask you about your use of humor in your books. Um, and I know that we've just been talk talking about um, tragedy and people's, and people's deaths and terrible working conditions, but I also wanna talk to you about um, sometimes light and humorous touch that you have throughout uh, these um, these stories. And I, I know I'm thinking of the funny and poignant story Crossing Over, uh, which I think is in some ways a very um, <clears throat> Canadian story for its invocation of difficult weather. Of course, it's very much a migrant story in terms of um, the kinds of social conditions that our, uh, our four characters there uh, describe. Uh, do you want to say something about crossing over humor and and uh, how the humor undercuts uh, some of the uh, conditions in the story? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, crossing over is one of those stories where I couldn't help but laugh as I was writing it. You know, it was drawn from memories of my own family trying to navigate the Canadian winter, which often leads to all kinds of absurd <laughs> <laughs> and laughable situations. I remember <laughs> and early on in our time in Canada, when we were living in Nova Scotia, I remember the neighbor <laughs> whipping out a hairdryer to thaw the ice off the door of his car. <laughs> 
And I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. You know, turn Canada into a very exotic and interesting place. And it stayed with me. And I knew that I had to work this into a story at some point. And so it did work its way into the story crossing over, which does have a serious side because it's about um, two families. One is from India, one is from Pakistan. And of course, that's my background. Um, I'm a Pakistani Canadian. And very often immigrants who come here from certain parts of the world, we, we become instant best friends because we sort of recognize a shared plight. At the same time, we, we bring our histories with us. And of course, South Asia is one of those parts of the world where there are very fractious histories and ongoing hostilities from, you know, between Pakistan and India and history of partition itself that divided the region along religious lines. So it becomes part of the irony of the story as well, that people who otherwise maybe wouldn't connect on some more fundamental levels as immigrants. Perhaps the serious subtext here is that an Indian woman, so one part of the couple known as Krishna and Radha, comes here with her credentials as a teacher, but she can't find a job in her profession and um, ends up becoming, much to her dissatisfaction, a board housewife. Her husband, on the other hand, um, makes good on the American dream. They, they're very affluent, you know, they're doing very well. He's an accountant. They're living the life, but, but she's fundamentally unhappy because, you know, she hasn't been able to enjoy the kind of freedom, financial independence, etc., that she enjoyed in India. Migration can be very gendered. I like sort of this idea of mixing seriousness and humor. I think it just comes naturally to me. I, perhaps I just have an impulse against always having to take ourselves so seriously all the time. And, and I think there's always room for levity and laughter. Laughter is medicine after all. Laughter is survival. And so it's this kind of tension between the seriousness of the immigrant predic predicament in particular and the humor that comes with some of these um, discoveries and situations, such as navigating the Canadian winter uh, that plays itself out in crossing over. You know, perhaps think of it as a kind of discomforting or cathartic laughter that I like to play with in many of these stories. I don't want to, to finish today without talking about your new novel, because you have a novel coming out with Moenzi Press in October of this year, in, in October 2022. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been writing uh, very much about how the global impacts local and perhaps vice versa. And the description of the book notes, you also deal with a very serious subject, the disturbing rise in uh, hate crimes uh, aimed at Canadian Muslims and, and thinking about the Pakistani diaspora as uh, what you call here a reservoir of experience and story. So the novel's called Isolated Incident. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about that and perhaps uh, read a portion of it? Many of my stories or many of my fiction seems to come from current affairs and I pay particular attention to the news and perhaps certain things that get underreported or certain maybe just things that uh, trigger something for me, um, alerting me to perhaps, again, the gaps in representation. And 
this novel, of course, I should say is inspired, but in the loosest possible terms from terrible tragedy of the Quebec massacre. So the, the shooting of Muslims who were in the mosque in Quebec City by Alexandre Bissonnette that happened a few years ago. And I was, of course, struck very deeply personally by this event as someone who is of Pakistani background and, you know, my family is part of the Muslim diaspora. And it's something that I really wanted to tackle because I was thinking again about underrepresentation, especially Muslim Canadians in particular, I think, are quite underrepresented in, in Canadian literature. And when we are, it seems to be more a question of terrorism and radicalization coming from the Muslim community. So I thought this is an occasion perhaps to flip the lens a little bit and think about radicalization and acts of terror or violence, specifically Islamophobia and hate crimes, as they are directed at an immigrant or diasporic community, in this case, of course, Muslim Canadians. And so that's how this novel has come about. Yeah, I would be really happy to, to read a segment of it just to contextualize it. The novel rather is, is, is multi-voiced. It's a multi-voiced narrative. I like the idea of this story being told by a very diverse cast of Muslim Canadians simply to also perhaps um, acknowledge the diversity of Muslim experiences and identities from the secular Muslim to, you know, more devout Muslim to young characters who are thinking about their Muslim heritage for the first time. The piece I'm going to read to you is from the perspective of one of the characters. His name is Kashif. He's a young man in his 20s. He's a little bit lost. Um, he's going through a rough time. His mother has cancer. His father has sort of absconded. He doesn't quite know where, where he is. And he's just trying to figure things out. So he, he finds himself gravitating to the Muslim community that in the novel is signified by this Islamic cultural center. And so he's getting reacquainted with his faith. At the same time, there are these rising spate of hate crimes directed at the community. And he and a group of young men are starting to feel let down by their religious leaders in that they don't seem to be doing enough to protect the community or to respond to the kind of violence or threats against this particular community and perhaps Muslims in Canada more broadly. Kashif sat cross-legged in one of dozens of rows of congregants, many softly reciting Allahu Akbar as their fingers moved nimbly over black rosaries. The majority sat on the floor, each one perched on their own janamas, the prayer rug Kashif had nicked from his mom since she no longer seemed to have any use for it. Unaccustomed to sitting on his haunches, Kashif looked longingly at the chairs along the hall's perimeter set up for the elderly, disabled or infirm, most of them still empty. He wished the imam would begin the service they had all woken up so early to attend. Not wanting to come across like the fidgety kids around him, he tried to emulate the older men who sat with such purposeful patience, setting their intentions in quiet reflection, though he had to chuckle at one of the fathers confiscating his kid's cell phone. 
Like his elders, Kashif wanted to surrender to the experience. But being in the largest mosque in the country on one of the most important days in the Islamic calendar brought up other concerns he could hardly suppress. In this wide open space that announced itself like a billboard, weren't they sitting ducks to the people who wished them harm? And he couldn't keep his eyes from wandering to the hall's shadowy corners or the hidden compartments and unattended bags, each of which could be concealing weapons of mass destruction. Even the congregants themselves weren't off his radar for signs of suspicious behavior like a nervous twitch or a hand reaching into a jacket for, who knew, a knife, a gun, a detonator? Kashif wondered if they'd be any safer in one of the smaller mosques, and he desperately wanted to experience his first Salat al-Eid in a real mosque built on the principles of Islamic architecture, not in some depressing room in a grungy commercial plaza. He wanted to pray in the kinds of places he'd seen in his parents' photographs, like the one his dad called the world's most spectacular mosque, where they were watching that old Bond film with Sean Connery and the Russian spy. Of course, this place was hardly the Hagia Sophia, but it boasted a classic dome elevating the center hall, arched windows flooding the space with natural light, and five green columns representing the five pillars of Islam, adding to what he could only describe as a place of contrast, expansive yet inviting, unadorned but striking, grand but humble. A microphone reverb made Kashif's heart skip a beat as everyone sprang to their feet at the sight of a youngish-looking man who introduced himself in a distinctly Canadian accent as Imam Ghalib, Allahu Akbar, a soothing voice filled the room through a set of loudspeakers. Allahu Akbar echoed the voices of young and old now standing shoulder to shoulder, their hands outstretched, poised to submit to the call of the imam. Kashif struggled to keep up with the imam's lead, sneaking furtive peeks at his neighbors, going into the bowing position when they did, standing straight when they did, hands on chest, head turned right, head turned left, he mouthed the prayer associated with each movement. Subhana Rabbi al -Azim. Careful to mimic the imam's Arabic pronunciation, which was enviably as fluent as his English, once the awkwardness and hesitation lifted, Kashif found his stride, his body and mo mind moving in sync with the congregants. Like one of so many limbs, they bowed as one, stood as one, prayed as one, Bismillah irrahman irahim. The words reached out to him like a fatal heartbeat. Thank you for that. I, I'm looking forward to uh, the novel coming out and, and diving into, uh, into these characters and, and, these, uh, and these situations. I, I think you're um, courageous to write this, and uh, I think it's a, it's a novel that we uh, certainly need to, to read. Now, we're just about getting to the end of our time, um, but I have one last question. Fiction writer Anne Patchett has said that she writes one novel in many iterations. And for her, it's always this. A group of strangers are flung together due to unforeseen circumstances, and they have to figure out how to live together. Now, Patchett's been very clear that she thinks she's always trying to rewrite Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. 
Miriam Taves has recently said that all of her books take on the same kind of template, three women who are trying to fit, work out their relationships with each other. And for Taves, she says it's always a version of her mother, a version of her sister, and a version of herself. So Mariam, it may be early in your career to ask this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. What's the frame from which you see yourself writing? If I were to think about my own work um, and any kinds of um, patterns in my own work, I would say that I'm often uh, led by the idea of unity, if that makes any sense. Um, so thinking about my novel, for instance, I. You know, I really wanted it to be a multi-voiced narrative, so narrated from, um, because I think I like this idea of a reader having to sort of work through the connections between people to finding those levels of interconnection and interrelationship through what otherwise might seem, you know, a fractured space or a fractured community. So unity and disunity, the, the interplay between the two is something that I, I think I, at least subconsciously, <laughs> uh, seems to come out in, in my writing and in my fiction. I think I'm deeply influenced actually by Caribbean writers who've been doing this sort of thing for a long time and also talking about fracture and integration for a very long time. Just think about the islands, for instance, or the metaphor of the island. The island just popping up out of the ocean seems so remote and so divorced from, from everything around it. And I always go back to a poet, Jean Bintabriz, a Caribbean poet who describes the Caribbean islands or the archipelago that makes up the Caribbean islands as a place where under the ocean we hold hands. So what mm. we see as disunity, as disconnection, as isolation beneath the ocean surface is actually a continuous landmass. So under the island we hold hands. And I think this principle really both drives my, my own sort of cultural sensibility in many ways and my writing. I love that. I love under the ocean we hold hands. And that really is a, a unity and disunity or, or a perfect mm -hmm. metaphor for that. Well, Mariam, I want to thank you for joining us. And I also want to remind people that Outside People and Other Stories was published by Inanna Publications in 2017, and it is available anywhere quality books are sold. I always like to encourage our listeners to support your local bookseller like Wordsworth Books in Waterloo or The Bookshelf in Guelph. And I also want to remind people to keep an eye out for Isolated Incident, which will be published by Mowensi Press in October 2022. Thanks for joining us, Mariam. We want to take a moment to announce the passing of our technical producer, friend, and colleague, Brendan Highmore, who passed away on Sunday, January 9th, 2022, at Hamilton General Hospital. Brendan died of a stroke while in his 20s. He joined the Watershed Riders team from the very start, and his professionalism and technical savvy really grounded us. He could make our voices sound wonderful even when we recorded on Zoom. Brendan graduated from the Conestoga College Broadcast Television Program in 2016. 
and served as the technical producer on the ex-camera talks about local artists for Kitchener's InterArts Matrix series, as well as doing a lot of pro bono work for local causes. He was an important and respected team member for the Watershed Writers series, and he took on the roles of technical producer and digital marketer for the show. He was about to enter a program on starting a consulting practice at Conestoga College, as well as beginning season two of Watershed Writers at our new home here on Midtown Radio. Our condolences to Brendan's parents, John and Leslie Highmore at this difficult time. Right now, I'd like to invite Francis Riley, Watershed Writers producer online to talk with me a little bit about uh, Brendan. Hi, Francis, welcome. Thank you, Janice. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, as we remember Brendan, a little bit about meeting him. And uh, I know you've got a story, kind of an origin story about, mm. the, about the show and Brendan. Can you tell us that? Yes, the old common studio down on King Street was somewhere I used to go and mentor young filmmakers and broadcasters. And I made a connection with Brendan there because we actually shared you know, a real passion for broadcasting and videography and, and radio producing and all that good stuff. So one day he approached me and he said, Francis, do you know any writers in the area? I'm, you know, he was quite entrepreneurial. He, he really did want to innovate. That was the beginning of our collaboration. We were in that um, microphone training session for radio presenters that I feel like I really got it about him and his professionalism and his expertise, because you ended up coaching me from the point of view of someone who was interested in the content and some of the technique, and he was all business about the mic technique. And I thought, aha, now I feel like I get it about him. Now I feel like I've, I've got the, the picture of the professional Brendan. Yes, I could pick up on that. The interesting thing about our team, Tannis, is that we, are inter we were intergenerational. So there was like a 50-year age gap between me and Brendan. And he came through with the latest tools of technology to do what he did so well. And, and he, would, he would actually be amused by my stories. You know, I'd tell him grandma's stories about my days. That back in my day, <laughs> um, and uh, he would just sit there and just take it all in with good humor. And I genuinely was proud of him and all that he had achieved to get where he was, and and also where he was going into this entrepreneurial program at Conestoga. It, it was all there at his feet, his future, and unfortunately and sadly it's all been cut short. So I'm hoping that this memory of him and this tribute of him will stand as an accolade for all he is and was. Thank you for listening to Watershed Writers. Our theme music is Water from the Kitchener singer-songwriter, Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week. We are on Midtown Radio based in Kitchener-Waterloo every Saturday. And you can find us on Spotify.